once again, starting off a new year, excited to start off this way with you as well. So if you have a Bible, Bible app with you, we're going to look at a passage from God's Word, talk about what it means and why it matters and what we should do about it. And today we are in Second Chronicles, a place I know you probably spend a lot of time. Second Chronicles chapter 20, uh, if you need some help finding that Old Testament Joshua, Judges, Ruth, you got 1st and 2nd Samuel, 1st and 2nd Kings, then 1st and 2nd Chronicles. 2nd Chronicles chapter 20, beginning at verse 1, and when you found that, if you're able, can you stand and honor the reading of, the God, reading of God's Word? I'll give you a little extra time, because I know maybe that's not familiar to you. Okay, I'll read this for us. We have here an account of Jehoshaphat, who at this time is the king of the southern kingdom of Judah. After this, the Moabites and the Ammonites, with some of the Munites, came to wage war against Jehoshaphat. Some people came and told Jehoshaphat, a vast army is coming against you from Edom, from the other side of the Dead Sea. It's already at Hazazon Tamar, that is, En Gedi, alarmed. Jehoshaphat resolved to inquire with the Lord, and he proclaimed a fast for all Judah. The people of Judah came together to seek help from the Lord. Indeed, they came from every town in Judah to seek him. Then Jehoshaphat stood up in the assembly of Judah and Jerusalem at the temple of the Lord in front of the new courtyard and said, Lord, the God of our ancestors, are you not the God who is in heaven? You rule over all the kingdoms of the nations. Power and might are in your hand, and no one can withstand you. Our God, did you not drive out the inhabitants of this land before your people, Israel, and give it forever to the descendants of Abraham, your friend? They have lived in it and have built a sanctuary for your name, saying, If calamity comes upon us, whether the sword of judgment or plague or famine, we will stand in your presence before this temple that bears your name and will cry out to you in distress, and you will hear us and save us. But now here are men from Ammon, Moab, and Mount Seir, whose territory you would not allow us to, you would not allow Israel to invade when they came from Egypt. So they turned away from them and did not destroy them. See how they are repaying us by coming to drive us out of the possession you gave to us as, our, as an inheritance. Our God, will you not judge them? For we have no power to face this vast army that is attacking us. We do not know what to do, but our eyes are on you. And all the men of Judah with their wives and children and little ones stood before the Lord. Then the Spirit of the Lord came upon Jehaziel, son of Zechariah, the son of Benaiah, the son of Jeel, son of Mataniah, a Levite and descendant of Asaph. As he stood in the assembly and he said, Listen, King Jehoshaphat and all who live in Judah and Jerusalem, this is what the Lord says to you. Do not be afraid or discouraged because the vast of this vast army, for the battle is not yours but God's. Tomorrow, march down against them. They will be climbing up by the pass of Ziz, and you will find them at the end of the gorge in the desert of Jeruel. You will not have to fight this battle. Take up your position, stand firm, and see the deliverance of the Lord will give you Judah and Jerusalem. Do not be afraid. Do not be discouraged. Go out to face them tomorrow, for the Lord will be with you. Jehoshaphat bowed down with his face to the ground, and all the people of Judah and Jerusalem fell down and worshiped before the Lord. And some of the Levites and the Korathites and the Korahites stood up and praised the Lord, the God of Israel, with a very loud voice. That's God's word. You may be seated. Let me pray for us quickly, and then we'll dive into this. Spirit of God, we ask now, 
would you come powerfully and work among us? God of our ancestors, would you come and work powerfully in this gathering of your people today? As we look to this word, would you accomplish whatever purpose it is that you have intended for it in each one of our lives? And as I always ask now, eternal God, would you move and govern my tongue to speak your truth? Amen. Well, here we are. One week into a new year, 2024. Let's go. Uh, how's it going? How's it going so far? So far, so good. Um, already falling off the rails. Uh, which is it? Somewhere in between. Uh, for me, uh, I think uh, that's probably somewhere in between. A little bit of a mixed bag. Probably, uh, uh, there's absolutely things I'm excited about and hopeful for for this year, for myself, uh, my family, uh, our church, no question. And yet, I don't know, people always talk about a new year as like this clean sheet of paper uh, that you now get to write on. Um, you've heard this before, it's a blank sheet, here we go, new year. I think last week Kent referred to it as like a yard with freshly fallen snow and no tracks on it. It's a beautiful picture, I, I love that. And yet, I don't know, maybe it's just me. But whenever I wake up on uh, January 1st, what I invariably find is a piece of paper with all kinds of writing on it, actually. In fact, it's the same unfinished to-do list that I went to bed with on December 31st, just there waiting for me. And, and, and not even just with stuff from the previous year, this stuff a number of years back, I'm like, man, I really need to get to that. Um, so that, that's how I'm starting out, and, and if there is any kind of like Freshly fallen snow, which is kind of being hard to come by this year. Uh, it looks to me more like a backyard that's in the midst of being landscaped. Uh, it's got tracks all over the place from a tractor. The fence is half taken off to get the tractor and supplies in. Holes dug for trees not yet planted. That, that's what my yard looks like. So, yeah, that, that already feels scary. Overwhelming as I'm starting a new year and I'm just like, oh, but then add to that. Thank you so much, social media. I now get to scroll through the feeds of millions of people around the world who, it sounds like for them, they very much woke up to a clean sheet of paper, uh, freshly fallen snow without tracks in the backyard, and they're excited and ready to start a new year and, and all these new challenges and goals. Here we go. And I'm just like, now I'm feeling pressure, pressure as well. Like, well, am I supposed to do that too, to add that on to what's already going on? Like, maybe now I'm supposed to add goals and, and new challenges to this already unfinished list. I mean, it can just leave me feeling I, I, I just overwhelmed. Or just, if I can, maybe feeling just shame that I'm not able to do it. I, I can't add anything else to this list. So again, that's just me. But, but as I become increasingly aware over the years of my all-too-limited capacity, uh, this attack from like multiple sides, the past and the future, can just leave me feeling uh, really afraid as I start the year, feeling overwhelmed, beaten by the year before it's even barely begun, and also just like powerless to do anything to change that outcome, which is a feeling that is not all that dissimilar, I would imagine, to King Jehoshaphat and the people of Judah here in our passage today as they face an attack from multiple surrounding nations in which they too felt powerless to resist. As you see there expressed at the end of Jehoshaphat's prayer in verse 12, he says, we have no power. We, we are powerless to stand against this army that's attacking us, followed by, and we don't know what to do about it. I mean, does that, does that 
sound familiar to anyone? Anyone else been like, oh yeah, I've been there. And like, yes, okay, 100%, no. Uh, King Jehoshaphat and his people, they're, they're facing like a literal army of nations coming against them to attack them, right? Not, not overwhelming feelings of a never-ending to-do list or social pressures. Like, I get it that it's different. And yet, I don't know, something about the way Jehoshaphat expresses what he's feeling as well as the way he responds to the overwhelming circumstances that he's facing has just deeply resonated with me since my wife reminded me of this passage a number of years ago. She was doing a devotional through this and just shared, and I was like, oh yeah, I, I love that, that's right. And it's just stuck with me ever since because I think the point and the real hope for us today to still spend some time looking at this passage is that First of all, whether we're facing the exact same circumstances that Jehoshaphat was or not, everyone, all of us knows what it feels like to feel attacked from every side and powerless to defend ourselves. We, we've all been there to some degree or another. And then secondly, and perhaps even more importantly, if God shows himself able to deliver Jehoshaphat and his people from, from multiple nations coming against them in battle, then maybe, just maybe, God can deliver me from the less deadly but equally overwhelming circumstances that I'm facing one week into a new year. That is, like maybe if God can deliver from a national emergency, maybe he can deliver me from my personal one as well. So that's why I've kept at least the idea of this passage in my back pocket, uh, preaching on this uh, until just it seemed like the right time. Just kind of kept it for the right opportunity, and it seems like, I guess, today... Uh, is what the Holy Spirit had in mind for us to do together. So as we work through this passage today, I really just want to highlight two things for us as we start out this first message of the new year. We're going to look at Jehoshaphat's response to calamity, and then we'll look at God's response to Jehoshaphat. Just those two things. Jehoshaphat's response to calamity, God's response to Jehoshaphat. So if you closed your Bible, your Bible app, and you're able to find it again, uh, turn with me to our passage, 2 Chronicles chapter 20. Follow along with me as we learn about how where you fix your eyes in the midst of trouble means everything in relation to whether or not you experience deliverance from that trouble or not. Where we fix our eyes means everything. Okay, so let's look first of all at Jehoshaphat's response to calamity. Jehoshaphat's response to calamity, and it certainly is calamity. It, it is impending disaster that Jehoshaphat is responding to. Is Look again at verse 1 and 2 there. These three nations, the Moabites, the Ammonites, and the Munites, they're all right on his doorstep, and they're not coming for a tour of Jerusalem. They're not coming to see the sites. Oh, that's the Wailing Wall. How nice. They're coming to destroy it. They're coming to take it over and take the land from them. If you look at a map from this period of time that all this is happening, you get a sense of both like where these coalition nations are coming from, as well as like how close they are to Jerusalem, right there on the uh, coast of the Dead Sea at this place, Hazazon Tamar, uh, and Gedi. And you might wonder, like as well, like how is it that they're like so close, and this is the first time Jehoshaphat's even being told, hey, by the way, there's a huge army coming against us. Uh, it feels like, man, shouldn't they have known ahead of time? Well, you got to remember, in this period of history, they don't, have, they don't have satellite tracking. There's not fighter jets doing border patrols. Uh, very often, 
nations would have very little warning, very little time to prepare when they suddenly realized, hey, someone's coming to attack us. So this is actually pretty common. But the point is, when we read in verse 3 that Jehoshaphat is alarmed at this news, it's not without good reason. Right? He knows that they're outnumbered by this coalition attack coming against them. And again, as we saw in verse 12, he knows they're powerless to stand against them. They, they don't have the resources. They don't have the armies to stand up against this attack. So they know it. But as you continue to read, what you notice right away is that more than just being shocked and fearful alone, the king also resolves to inquire of the Lord. That's what he says there. The king resolved to inquire of the Lord. Some of your translations might have it as set his face to seek the Lord. Which, taken all together, is interesting because it actually tells us a lot about Jehoshaphat when we look at that whole response together. Right? And the fact that he's fearful, he's afraid, he's alarmed, that shows us he's human. Okay? So he's not responding with just kind of like arrogant boasts, like, we got this, guys, don't worry. Nor kind of like this stoic kind of resignation, I'm honored to die alongside you guys. No, like he's just afraid. He sees the army coming. Very human response. He's, he's afraid, he's alarmed, fearful, terrified. But what it also tells us is that he's learned over time where to turn in such circumstances when the odds are clearly stacked against him. He's learned where to turn. And the strength of his leadership, as you see in the second half of verse 3 and into verse 4, is that not only does Jehoshaphat turn to God in the face of calamity himself, he also leads the people under his rule and reign. From the oldest to the youngest, he leads them to do so as well, calling for this national seeking of God together through prayer and fasting. And lastly, you see in the beginning of verse 5 now, he leads, he stands before the people, this entire assembly, and leads them corporately in this prayer together. So he's not just saying, you guys do this. He's, he's leading the people in this corporate seeking of God together. And, and thinking about Jehoshaphat's prayer, I think it's worth just pausing here to unpack a few of the key elements of his prayer. As I think we learn from Jehoshaphat's prayer both principles as well as like a pattern of prayer that applies really to prayer in general, but I think to prayer in the face of calamity in particular. I just want to spend a few minutes doing that. So if you look, first of all, at verses 6 through 9, you see that the bedrock foundation of Jehoshaphat's prayer is to begin, like where he starts, is by looking back. He looks backward in his prayer, first, at the faithfulness of God to his people in the past. He doesn't start out, doesn't just jump right into request, doesn't jump right into the problem. God, there's people coming against us, we need you to save us. He doesn't start there. He starts by looking backwards. See, right off the bat there, beginning of verse 6, prayer begins to the God of our ancestors. Then he goes on in verse 7 and following to actually name a couple of them. Right? He speaks there in verse 7 of God's now realized promise to Abraham, both to give him a land of his own and to make him into a great nation. Then in verse 8, he's referring to King David and King Solomon, who helped establish Israel as a nation, as well as the construction of the temple in Jerusalem. In fact, verse 9 is actually like almost a literal transcript of the prayer of dedication that Solomon prayed over the temple when they finished and completed the construction, where the, the prayer was literally that if calamity ever struck them, judgment, plague, pestilence, whatever, they could turn their face to this place where God had caused his name to dwell, and God promised he would hear and save them. So he's, he's bringing all this stuff up. He's calling all this stuff to mind. And the question I think we've got to ask ourselves, well, why is he doing that? 
Is he trying to remind God of like, hey, remember, you're on our side. Is that what he's doing? No, I don't, I don't think so. I think what Jehoshaphat is doing here in this moment, in effect, is he is stoking the fires of his faith. He's, he's reminding himself, before he asks God anything, he's reminding himself of God's powerful deeds. He's reminding himself of God's faithfulness to his promises first, so that he then has the proper perspective on who he's praying to when he comes now to ask for deliverance. He's starting with reminding himself of that. For as you can see, it's in light of looking back at all this evidence of all God's faithfulness to his people in the past, Jehoshaphat can now refer to God as, God, you are the one where power and might are in your hand, and no one can withstand you. How does he know that? Well, he's remembering, God, Pharaoh and all his armies, they couldn't stand against you. Other kings, other nations tried, they couldn't stand against you. So he knows he's starting with that first. Reminding himself of who God is and what he's done. And then it's only after reminding himself of that, who God is, what he's been faithful to do in the past, that now he looks to the present. Now he comes to the request and reminding of the circumstances that he's facing. Look at verse 10 through 12 now. He names these nations coming against them as well as the injustice. The injustice of the fact that these are, these are the nations, God, you wouldn't let us invade when we came out of Egypt into this land that you promised. You wouldn't let us invade them. We just left them to themselves. But now look here, we left them alone, but now they're coming to try to take our land. They're doing exactly what we didn't do to them. So as you see in verse 12, he calls for God's justice. He's saying, God, be the sovereign judge over this injustice being committed against us by a power that we can't resist. It's, it's not right what they're doing, but we can't stop them. There's no way that we can bring about justice. God, you bring about justice for us. And that's for looking to the future. Rather than telling God, okay, so this is how it needs to work out now. Instead, Jehoshaphat surrenders the result of that entirely into God's hands. With this closing of his prayer, which has now become a prayer that's so often been spoken by me as well, a prayer that ends up on my own lips. We don't know what to do, but our eyes are on you. Can't tell you how many times I've prayed that over the last few years since being reminded of that. I don't know what to do here, but I'm looking to you. I'm not, I'm not looking to my own resources, monetary, military, strategic. We, we're looking to you alone, God, and trusting both that you know what needs to happen here and that you're more than able to bring it about. That, that's, that's really what that prayer very simply just means. So that's, that's Jehoshaphat's amazing response to calamity. And I think in, in light of that, when you think about your own response, as I think about my response to calamity, overwhelming circumstances, I'm not powerful enough to face, I don't know what to do. I think the question that we all need to ask ourselves in light of that is like, okay, so is this, is this my instinct as well? Is this my response when I'm in the face of calamity? Is this the first place I go? Again, not at all that you're not afraid in the midst of these overwhelming circumstances you're powerless to stand against. Jehoshaphat was afraid, he tells us. He was afraid. He didn't know what to do. He was alarmed. But in your fear, in your powerlessness, is your first instinct to look to God, to, to fix your eyes on Him, or is it to look somewhere or someone else? To look to yourself? What can I do here? What do I know? What's my strategy? To look to someone else? Can you help me here? What's your first instinct? Do we have Jehoshaphat's response to look right away first to God? 
And then, when you seek him, when you seek him, do you follow Jehoshaphat's pattern of prayer in a way that inspires great faith alongside whatever great things you're asking God to do? Do you, do you, do you pray like Jehoshaphat does here? Because listen, hear me. Yes and amen. I know sometimes in the midst of our powerlessness, sometimes in the midst of feeling overwhelmed at all we're facing, as the Apostle Paul writes in Romans 8, our prayers are nothing more than groans that the Spirit interprets for us. Sometimes that's all we got. Just, ugh. And somehow God interprets that. He's like, I know exactly what you mean. Yes, I know that's the case. And yet, far more often, look, myself included, I wonder if we're not guilty of the kind of faithless, really groundless prayers that the Apostle James describes at the beginning of his letter to the church where basically we've already decided before we even ask that God can't or won't answer. We just, we're praying completely faithless and groundless prayers. I wonder if that's not far more often our pattern. In his own work on this passage, pastor and author John Tyson said something profound about the all-too-common contrast to Jehoshaphat's pattern of prayer, which is present in many followers of Jesus today. And it really just like, hit me right in the chest, really felt deeply convicted by it. He said, when I listen to the prayers that I hear so often, they rarely match this pattern, Jehoshaphat's pattern. Because so often, if we were really genuinely honest with ourselves, a lot of us want to believe that God is great, but we don't really quite believe he is. We believe he likes us, we believe that he's kind, but most of us, if we really searched our minds for what God is like, believe he's like a rich uncle who went all in on crypto lost everything, and now he, he wants to help. He feels sad about where we're at, but can't do that much for you right now. And this is reflected in how we pray. Honestly, most of our prayers are prayers for comfort from a God who can't do that much, rather than prayers of confidence to a God who can break in and act. If you listen to how people pray, most of us are basically making excuses for why God can't rather than acknowledging who he is and what he can do. Wow. That's exactly how I pray a lot of times. God, I, I know this is like, you know, too much, but if you can do anything, we don't pray like Jehoshaphat. So I don't know, I don't know if you do resolutions, New Year's resolutions, but if there was... One that, that would be helpful to start the new year with, I bet you this would be it. Like if we tried and believed in 2024 to train ourselves over time and, and, and in the context of community to have this same instinct of Jehoshaphat, to, to seek the Lord first in our calamity and then learn to just follow his pattern of prayer that we see here as well, I believe we're going to see God do things in 2024 that we never even imagined possible. We didn't even know what to ask for. Not, not that we direct or command God in some way, no. And yet the more you read the Bible, what you see more and more is the way God tends to respond powerfully, miraculously, when people seek him in prayer, trusting in both who he is as well as what he's able to accomplish. He tends to respond in really powerful and incredible ways when we do that. 
which is exactly what we see now in the remainder of our passage. Following Jehoshaphat's response to calamity, now we see God's response to Jehoshaphat. So again, look at verse 13. You see here all the men of Judah, along with their wives, their children, their little ones, they all come together here. They're, they're seeking the Lord together at the temple in Jerusalem. And then in verse 14, we see the Spirit of the Lord comes upon a prophet named Jehaziel in response to the prayers of Jehoshaphat and the people, a response that we have recorded for us here in verse 15 through 17. And as you see, the first words of God's response uh, addressed to the very fear and alarm that we saw that Jehoshaphat had back in verse 3. God tells his people right there, um, don't be afraid. Do not be afraid or discouraged because of the vast, this vast army. The battle is not yours, but God's. And what follows then is basically assuring, God is assuring Jehoshaphat and the people that he is with them. He's assuring them of deliverance, that they will not need to fight this otherwise unwinnable battle. God says, I'll be with you, and I'm going to be fighting for you. And a deliverance that God not only promises, but that he carries out. And we didn't read this far, but as you keep reading into verse 22 to 28, God brings about this incredible deliverance, this vast army totally overtaken, totally wiped out, so that Jehoshaphat and the people of Judah, they don't have to draw a single sword, shoot a single arrow. The battle is literally done for them. I loved how one commentator put it. He said, the people must confront the enemy, but as prayerful spectators, not combatants. In fact, what a number of commentators pointed out was there's almost an exact parallel between what God says through his prophet here in verse 17 and what God says to Moses and the people of Israel in Exodus 14. They're standing at the Red Sea, uh, the, the ocean on one side of them, and Pharaoh and his armies coming down on the other. And God says, fear not, stand firm, and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will work for you today. The Lord will fight for you. You have only to be silent. It's almost the exact same promise which God was faithful to deliver then, too. So as you see, God responds incredibly to the seeking and faith-filled prayers of Jehoshaphat and the people, revealing both that he sees and he hears what's going on. He's not an indifferent, aloof deity sitting up in the sky. He knows what's up. He sees what's going on. And we see his ability to work powerfully in response to the prayers of his people. It brings about complete and amazing deliverance. But something interesting that you see, if you look with me at verse 16, although, yes, God promises the battle is his, he will fight on their behalf. Look, he still commands them to suit up and march down against this army that he knows they don't have the power to stand against. Why would he do that? And, and follow-up question, why does God still do that today? Like, if God knows he's going to defeat this massive coalition army, why take the time and, and, and put them in this precarious position to have them go and stand in front of this overwhelming circumstance anyways? That's right. I think that, that's the, the answer then as well as today is this, that with God, for our faith to be complete, action must always accompany belief. Say that again. With God, for our faith to be complete, action must always accompany belief. It's not enough to just say, I trust you. There's usually some action that God calls us to, to evidence the fact that we believe. Or as 
James, again, says, James 2, What good is it, my brothers and sisters, if someone claims to have faith but has no deeds? Can such a faith save them? Someone will say, you have faith, I have deeds. Show me your faith without deeds, and I will show you my faith by my deeds. Which is just to say, to leave Jehoshaphat and the people with the promise of deliverance only, it would have left their faith incomplete, as it wouldn't have required them to show evidence of the fact that they truly believed God would deliver them. In fact, if you look at all the ancestors that uh, Jehoshaphat listed in his prayer for deliverance back in 5 through 9, every single one of them had to go through the exact same process of faith. It wasn't just, uh, I believe you, God, that you're going to do what you said. There was some action they were called to, to evidence. God called them to some action to evidence that their belief was true and it brought their faith to completion. Same thing is true for you and me today. It's all well and good to seek God in the midst of your calamity, even express your faith in his ability to deliver. You should. But for our faith to truly be complete, we must be willing to give evidence of that trust by continuing to move forward as though you actually believed he will deliver you. That's where our faith is truly complete, when we step out of the boat and don't just say, yeah, I trust you, God. We step out of the boat and really trust that he's actually going to deliver. We show that we believe him. I don't know what you're thinking about all this. This feels like a lot, I know, to start the year with. Um, I don't know how much this resonates with your own story and experience. One thing I do know is that whenever we come to read accounts of people in the Bible like this, it can be super easy to walk away feeling discouraged, disheartened, because the men and women in the Bible, they just feel like these shining, unattainable examples, which we feel like we could never live up to. I, can't, I couldn't do what Jehoshaphat did. I couldn't trust God like Abraham or Moses. Like Those things are way too big. I guess these are just great stories to inspire us. What that fails to recognize in this instance, although actually with every example of some hero in the faith in the Bible that we come to, is that this, what we have here in our passage, 2 Chronicles 20, is actually chance number two for Jehoshaphat, at least to trust in the deliverance of God after an epic failure to do so just two chapters earlier. Where God, uh, Jehoshaphat, they're, they're facing an army. Jehoshaphat had inquired of the Lord exactly as he had here, and, and a different prophet came to him and literally said, don't go into battle or you'll be defeated, and Jehoshaphat had gone anyway. So he'd done the exact opposite thing just two chapters earlier, failed, face plant, and certainly was defeated, just as God had promised. I think that's exactly what's behind Jehoshaphat's encouragement. If you look in verse 20, he says to the people, Listen to me, Judah and the people of Jerusalem. Have faith in the Lord your God, and you will be upheld. Have faith in his prophets and you will be successful. I think it's also evident in what the chronicler, the way he starts verse 1 when he says, after this, that is like after failing to trust God so profoundly, this is what happened. So you see, Jehoshaphat, he's not this shining example of faith and faithfulness that you could never live up to. What we see in chapter 20 is what Jehoshaphat had learned to come to over time through trial and some very big errors which I think means there's yet another hope and encouragement for us to be found in this passage. For not only does this story offer hope to those who currently feel attacked from all sides, hemmed in, powerless 
to stand in the face of everything coming against you this year. It also has hope for those who failed, either to seek God first in the past, looking everywhere but him in the midst of your calamity, or who failed to evidence their faith in God's promise of deliverance when they did seek him through action. I sought God, I, I said I trust you to deliver me, but I still tried to work it out myself. This passage also reveals, I think, just the gracious heart of our God. He's the God of second chances, and third chances, and fourth, and, and 25th chances. Which means, even for those of us who failed to trust him before, it means he doesn't deal with us the way that we would likely deal with someone who failed us so epically. He doesn't just say, you know what, like, that's nice that you need help, but you sure didn't want to listen last time. So, you know what, maybe just see how you, see how you do. Like, he doesn't respond like that. He's the God who's like, let's, let's try it again. Let's do it again. But regardless of where you're starting today, either struggling to trust him in the midst of calamity, having failed to trust him, or maybe just you want to start preparing your heart and mind spiritually ahead of time for whenever you do face calamity. My prayer for each one of us today is that like Jehoshaphat learned to do, we too would learn increasingly to heed the words that we read in Hebrews chapter 12. For the author there tells us, therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, that's the looking back piece. Looking back, we've got so much evidence in God's word of all that he's able to do, but not just here. Listen, your own life. I heard an amazing message on this passage where uh, the, the pastor was saying, you know, it's like I'm praying as well like God of my teenage years, not just God of my ancestors, God of my teenage years when I was running a hellbound race, didn't want anything to do with you, who, who got a hold of me and who prevented me from actually like blowing up my life. Taken off from that, I, I mean, I pray God of that Beautiful, blonde UBC student who didn't want to be in a relationship at all until she finished school, but you still led to be willing to date me, and now I have an amazing family because of it. That God who did that, this amazing cloud of witnesses around us, of all that we've seen God able to do, let us throw off every weight that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles and let us run with endurance the race marked out for us, fixing our eyes on Jesus. We don't know what to do, but our eyes are on you. The one who is the pioneer and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God, where he still sits today. Consider him who endured such opposition from sinners. He knows what it feels like to be in calamity, so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. Especially not just one week into the new year. <laughs> Oh, God, help us to do this. Give us faith to seek you and to trust you and to give evidence of that trust. Amen.